I've got a very important question to ask us today. I want to ask you a very important question, but even as I was preparing and in trying to, to set the tone, I googled what are some of the most important questions one can ask. And Google, as Google does, threw up a few options. And I was quite fascinated by the options that Google threw up. Um, I think you've got the wrong one. It's First Corinthians 15. I was quite fascinated by the options that Google threw up because the questions that Google threw at me are actually very important questions. And they're the kind of questions that answers the big issues in life. Firstly, where did I come from? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Not like your mommy and daddy. But like, where did I come from? Where do we come from as humans? What is our origin story? But secondly, who am I? The question of identity. How many of us haven't asked that and just grapple with that whole issue of who am I? Why am I here? My purpose. How should I live my morals right and wrong? And where am I going? My destiny. And as important as all of those questions are, and they are, and I believe that the Bible gives us help and guidelines as to how to find the answers to these questions, I believe that the question I'm going to ask you today is even more important than these questions. And I'm going to get to that question in just a minute. We're going to be reading before that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read just from verse 1. To 11. And when I pose this question to you, we've sung a lot today about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And there's a part of me that actually was wishing we were singing these songs in response to the message today. Because actually it's because of Jesus that we can be in the presence of an awesome God. And I want to challenge you that if you say you believe, I want to ask you at the end of the message, so what? So what if you believe? Turn in your Bibles, if you've got it with you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read from verse 1 to 11. I'm reading from the God's Word translation of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, I am making known to you the good news which I already told you, which you received, and on which your faith is based. In addition, you are saved by this good news if you hold on to the doctrine I taught you, unless you believed it without thinking it over. I passed on to you the most important points of doctrine that I had received. Christ died to take away your sins as the scriptures predicted. He was placed in a tomb. He was brought back to life on the third day as the scriptures predicted. He appeared to Cephas. Next he appeared to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. Most of these people are still living, but some have died. He appeared next to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. That is Paul speaking. I am like an aborted fetus who was given life. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted God's church. But God's kindness, also God's grace, made me what I am. And that kindness, that grace was not wasted on me. Instead, I work harder than all the others. It was not I who did it, but God's kindness was with me. So whether it is I or someone else, this is the message we brought to you. And this is what you 
believe. Verse 1 tells us that our faith, the things we say that we believe, is based on the good news that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. Faith, sometimes we speak of faith as a blind faith or a leap into the dark, but the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It's actually a faith that is built on facts. And the facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis on which our faith is built. That's why verse 2 says that if we don't believe that, then it's like we've believed it without thinking it over. The NIV says it's like your faith is in vain or your faith is useless. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and I'm sure Brad will be touching a little bit more on the implications of the fact that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead, how that should impact our faith. But unless Jesus' resurrection is actually true and factual, our faith has no foundation. It has no basis. Verse 3 to 6 of this passage gives us a beautiful, concise, clear summary of the message of the gospel. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He was brought back to life on the third day. And he was seen by many eyewitnesses. And I don't want the significance of that to be lost Because it was important for Paul to write this to the church in Corinth. Because in the ancient Greco world to which he was writing, people believed that death extinguished or completely led to a permanent but shadowy kind of substantial existence in the underworld. And remember the Corinthian church seemed to be steeped into the culture of its time. And they were influenced by the beliefs of the culture that they found themselves in. And especially because many of them were well educated, the concept of a physical embodied existence beyond death was almost laughable. Because that was the kind of things that they would talk about in children's stories and in fables. For them, death was the end. And death was a a kind of a nebulous, shadowy, existential nothing or something. And so it's important that Paul addresses this for the church in Corinth. And in the section that follows this, Paul deals with some of the issues that they probably addressed this church in their letter to him. They denied the future bodily resurrection of Christians. They denied the fact that Christians could actually be resurrected in the end times. There was also confusion about the future um, resurrection of Christians, but they denied the resurrection of of Jesus. So it was very important that Paul had to address this. But I want to ask you, even if it is true, so what does that mean for us today? But the second reason this passage is important is because over the years, there have been a few people who have challenged the historicity of the fact that Jesus did actually rise from the dead and was brought back to life. And whatever story has been concocted, there were always holes in the story. There were always flaws in the story. Some people believed that grave robbers stole Jesus' body. But that wouldn't have been possible because there were Roman guards placed there to make sure that that didn't happen. Others theorized or surmised that the disciples stole the body. And even there, the guards were there to stop that from happening. And beside that, we see from their surprise 
after Jesus' resurrection, which they shouldn't have been surprised, but they were surprised that actually the resurrection wasn't even uppermost in their mind because for the most part, they didn't understand how Jesus was preparing them for it. Others suggest that the authorities might have stolen the bodies, but even that makes no sense because if the authorities stole the bodies and the disciples afterwards started claiming that Jesus had risen, they could have quite easily just produced this body and say, actually, see, he's not alive. Some say women, the women that went to the tomb that morning went to the wrong tomb. And again, they could have just produced the body to show that it was the right tomb. Even others suggest that Jesus didn't die, but he just went into some deep sleep. And the coolness of the tomb um, revived him. But again, when he was placed in the tomb, the soldiers were convinced that he was dead. But then also the fact that Jesus appeared to so many people. And we see that from verse 6 to 8. And Paul says, almost as if to prove to them, most of these people are still alive. So even if you don't believe me, go to this person and they have actually seen Jesus, the disciples, Thomas, the 500 that he appeared to on one occasion. And then Paul gets to verse 10 of this passage. And in verse 10, he's basically saying in a different way what he says in second in, in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but God's kindness... God's grace has made me what I am. And that grace is an amazing grace. Is there anyone here that's experienced the amazing grace of God? Because actually you are not what you are because of yourself. It's God's grace that has made you what you are. And Paul expresses that in verse 10. He says, and that kindness, that grace wasn't wasted on me. Instead, I worked harder than all the others. But it wasn't me who was working. It was God's grace working in me. Doesn't it remind you of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, where Paul says, God saved you through faith as an act of grace, kindness. You had nothing to do with it. Being saved is a gift from God. It is not the result of anything you've done, so no one can brag about it. God has made us what we are. He has created us in Christ Jesus to live lives filled with the good works that he has prepared for us to do. And it's amazing that he ties it up, that grace of God actually, it's the thing that commissions him to do the good works. So he's not doing the good works in order to receive salvation. He's doing the good works because he has received the salvation. And he says the same thing in verse 10. It's not I who did it, but God's grace is working itself out in me. But I'm not going to use this sermon to convince you that the resurrection actually took place. Because judging from the way you were singing earlier on, I'm assuming you believe it already. (laughs) And there are many people who have written books where they provide evidence so that you can reach the verdict that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And actually, that's not even Paul's intention. Paul is not giving all these facts to try and convince the Corinthian church. He's actually telling them that you already believe these things. So if you believe it, it must translate into some kind of action. It must translate into some kind of change in your life. And I want to ask this morning, what is that change? My question to you, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus. I've read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you've got your Bible open, you might want to keep it open around John chapter 14, where Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. But also, 
around Acts 1, where Jesus ascends into heaven and gives them a few last instructions before he's going to go. And so I want you to ask yourself as you're listening to this message, the points are going to appear on the screen in front of you. And I want you to ask yourself, do I believe this? And if you do, my question is, what are you going to do about it? Firstly, Jesus is not dead. Do you believe that? Jesus is not dead. When his followers came to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, Luke 24 verse 5 to 6 says, The women were terrified. They bowed down to the ground. And the men, these were the angels dressed in white. They asked the women, Why are you looking among the dead for the living one? He is not here. He has been brought back to life. Remember what he told you while he was still in Galilee. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to a number of his followers over the next 40 days. Jesus is alive. Amen. Do you believe it? But Jesus is also not just not dead. Jesus is not found in buildings. They were coming to the tomb to look for Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. But do you know that there's a lot of people that go to churches on a Sunday morning thinking that they are going to find Jesus there. And I want to tell you that Jesus is not found in buildings. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Corinthian church believed that Jesus was found in buildings because that's what the Greeks and that's what the Romans believed. They believed that their gods were found in the temples that they built for them. But earlier in his ministry, in Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Athens, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, talking to a bunch of philosophers and religious people. Sometimes I wonder if our churches don't consist of philosophers and religious people. And Paul says to them, The God who made the universe and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in buildings made by humans. Jesus doesn't live in this physical building. If I say that, I'm going to need to qualify it. I'll qualify it with my next point. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not found in buildings. So my next point is about Jesus and where he actually resides. Jesus and the church. The church is the body of Jesus. Does that take your mind back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in Matthew 16 verse 18? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Jesus wasn't talking about taking literal bricks or stones and placing them one on top of the other to form a physical building. But he was talking about the living spiritual organism that is made up of living stones the believers in Jesus Christ. First Peter 2 verse 5 says, You come to him as living stones, a spiritual house that is being built into a holy priesthood. So offer spiritual sacrifices that God accepts through Jesus Christ. In First Corinthians 12, when we were there a few weeks ago, Paul says, You are Christ's body, and each of you is an individual part of it. And by you, I mean you. Every single one of us sitting here today is part of the body of Christ. We are those living stones. We are the parts of that body. And you know what 
every part in the body, and Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12, every part of the body has a part. No matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how important you might feel a part is, every part has a part to play. Which brings us to the purpose, because that is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to continue the work of Jesus. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came as a human man, a physical man. And one of the limitations of that physical nature was that he could only be in one place at a time. There were a whole lot of other limitations that Jesus took upon himself so that he could seek and save the lost. But what he did while he was on earth, he multiplied himself into his disciples and gave them instructions to make other disciples so that together we can all do not only what he was doing, but greater things than he was doing. John 14 verse 12, I guarantee this truth. Those who believe in me will do the things that I am doing. They will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. And so Jesus, and he comforts his disciples with these words. He says, I need to go to the Father so that you can be my body. And so all the things that Jesus did while he was on earth, he has entrusted to you and to me, his body, everyone a part in the body. And you know what happens when a part of your body doesn't do what it's supposed to do? That body is disabled. Casting crowns, the Christian group sang a song a number of years ago. Love this song. It's so challenging. It was called, If We Are the Body. And it takes that thought to its logical conclusion. Because if we are the body of Christ, let me read the lyrics. Why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? If we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them that there is a way and that he is the way? We are the body of Christ. But sometimes you and I render that body disabled because we aren't continuing the work of Jesus. You sometimes feel that the things we try to do just lack, lack oomph, lack power, lack effectiveness. The church is the body of Christ. Our purpose is to continue the work of Jesus, but we can't do it in our own strength. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, Jesus, I'm actually going to read it. John chapter 14, when Jesus tells them that he needs to go. Verse 16 Jesus comforts them with these words. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. That helper is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it doesn't see him or know him. You know him because he lives with you and will be in you. The reason many times our ministry or what we're doing lacks effectiveness is because we're doing it in our own strength and our strength will only get us so far. The reason we feel tired and weary when we're doing the things we know we should do is because we're depending on our own strength. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, as he ascended, just before he ascended, he said, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes to you, then you will be my witnesses to testify about me in Jerusalem, 
throughout Judea and, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As the body, that's what we've been called to do. As Christ's body, the church is on display, not just to continue the work of Jesus, but also to demonstrate what it means to live a Christ-like life. I like the saying where it says that your life might be the only Bible some people read. When people look at my life, they should be able to have an example of what it would look like if Jesus was walking this earth. You know, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians. How many times don't we read it as a checklist to evaluate our lives and we see the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. And we see actually there's some areas that I'm lacking there. I need to try harder in the area of faithfulness. Or I need to try harder in the area of self-control. It's not going to work because they're not the fruits of the flesh. They're not the stuff that comes naturally to me. Actually, the fruits of the flesh, Paul speaks about just a few verses before that. And those are the things that very often are the things that are prevalent in our lives. Because those are the things that come naturally to us. And that's why he says, live your life as the spiritual nature directs you. We need his Holy Spirit to cultivate those fruits in our lives and to bring them out. That's why 1 John 2, 6 which is the foundation verse for our Live 2-6 foundation year program, says those who say they live in Him must live the same way that Jesus lived. And it's simple, but it's hard. Just because something's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Actually, it's near impossible. That's why we need the power of the Spirit in our lives to do what Jesus did, loved his father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And it was evident in his life. He loved others and he imparted himself into his disciples so that they could make disciples. Lastly, and I'm putting these facts to you not to build an argument, but for you to evaluate, do you believe this about Jesus? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back again in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascended, actually just after he ascended. They were staring into the sky as he departed, verse 10. Suddenly two men in white clothes stood near them. They asked, why are you men from Galilee standing here looking at the sky? Jesus, who was taken from you to heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. Jesus is coming back again. For two reasons, he's coming back. Do you believe this? Well, first hear what I say and then you can decide. He's coming back for two reasons. Firstly, he's coming back to take those who believe in him home with him. First Corinthians, sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 4 paints the picture that there's going to be this loud trumpet that's going to, to sound. And those who have died in Christ will rise first. And then the rest of us believers who are alive will be taken up and we will be forever with him in the home that is gone to prepare for us. I said we're going to park a little bit in John chapter 14. It was Jesus' comfort to his disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and then I will come back and take you 
to be with me so that you can also be where I am. Jesus is coming back. And if we are believers, he's coming to take us back to be with him. But the second reason Jesus is coming back is to judge. And while I'm talking to believers, let's stay with the believers. Jesus is coming to judge the believers. Something that very often I've missed. Because I think that it's the unbelievers are going to be judged. Jesus is coming to take us and we're all going to be happy in heaven. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says to the church, to the believers, all of us must appear in front of Christ's judgment seat. Then all people will receive what they deserve for the good or evil they have done while living in their bodies. So you and I are going to be judged by the good and the evil that we've done. So believers are going to be judged by our works. And this judgment is not about sin. Let me make that clear. Because Jesus' death on the cross has already paid that price. So the price is paid, but we will be judged for our faithfulness in Christian service. Remember, Paul was saying that there are these works that I need to do. Those are the things that we're going to be judged for. Things that God has called you and me to. Actually, Paul calls them works that he has prepared in advance for me to do that. We're going to be judged. And even the works that we have done, even if we haven't been disobedient, the works we have done, if any of them are selfish works or works done with the wrong motives, those works will be burnt up. You remember Paul said it to the church in Corinth a good couple of months ago. I say months ago in our context, because it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, people may build, I'm reading from verse 12, people may build on this foundation, and the foundation is Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. The day will make what each one does clearly visible because fire will reveal it. That fire will determine the kind of work each person has done. If what the person has built survives, they will receive a reward. If their work is built up, they will suffer the loss. However, they will be saved, though it will be like going through a fire. So your salvation is secure, but the reward of the works we have done, many believers, the Bible tells us, will be missing out, either because of disobedience or because there were works that will be done, either selfishly or with the wrong motives. Jesus is coming to judge us. But he's also coming to judge those who don't believe him. And Revelation 20 spells out the scene. This great white throne judgment where the books are opened and whoever's name is written in the Lamb's book of life goes to that home that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. But if your name is not written in the book of life, those are the ones who are thrown into the fiery lake. And so the challenge is there for you and the challenge is there for me. Do you believe that Jesus was risen from the dead? And it's more than just a yes answer. It's not just, yes, I believe it. 
Do you believe that Jesus is not dead? Do you believe that Jesus is not found in buildings? Do you believe that the church, we are the body of Christ? That our purpose is to continue the work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back to take us home to be with him, to judge us and to judge unbelievers? Because if you do, I want to ask you, so what? What are we going to do about it? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the person who does what my Father in heaven wants. James says that even if you believe the right things about Jesus and God, but it doesn't affect your actions, you are like the demons. Do you know that these things on the screen, the demons believe it. They believe it because they know that they are true. They know that it's factual. James says, faith without some kind of action, some kind of response, is actually a dead faith. If you believe what Paul wrote about Jesus coming back to life, then it has to. It must. It's imperative that it affects the way we live and the way we respond. So here's the challenge. If you're an unbeliever, or I'd like to put it this way, if you've been an unbeliever up until this point, the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, that if you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God brought him back to life, you will be saved. And by believing you have God's approval, and by declaring your faith, you are saved. My question to someone who up until now has been an unbeliever is, are you willing to say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but that he was raised again with victory over sin, death, and judgment. I will receive his forgiveness. I will receive his Holy Spirit, and I will commit my life to being a follower of Jesus so that I can continue the work of Jesus. If you came in as an unbeliever, but you've heard God speak to you through the word, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in a few moments' time. But if you're already a believer, here's a different challenge for you and me. Am I playing my part as part of the body of Christ? Am I continuing the work of Jesus by loving God with everything that is within me, without holding back, by loving others in the way that Jesus loves them and sees them, and by making disciples? Am I living a Christ-like life? Is my life a reflection of what people would see if Jesus was walking here? Am I filled? Am I empowered by the Holy Spirit of God? And whether you're an unbeliever or whether you're a believer, if your answer was no to the questions that I put to you, then you are doing what verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15 calls, believing without thinking it over. Or the NIV says, believing in vain. We can believe this all we want. But if it doesn't change our hearts, and if it doesn't change how we live our lives, we are believing in vain. 
without thinking it over. I would like to give you an opportunity to think over the resurrection of Jesus. To think over what it means for us today. Can I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes? I would love to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word today. If you've come in here as an unbeliever, are you willing today to say, Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. But I believe based on your word that Jesus died for my sin. That he was brought back to life again. And I commit my life to living for Jesus, following him with the help of his Holy Spirit. I receive your forgiveness and I receive your Holy Spirit. If you would like to pray that prayer today for the first time, I'm going to invite you to stand so that I can include you in this closing prayer. Thank you. Please remain standing. Is there anyone else? Amen. Maybe you have prayed this prayer before. Maybe you're not an unbeliever, but your faith has waned. Your faith has grown cold and you've drifted away from God. Maybe today you want to recommit your life to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to join those who are standing. For the rest of us, are you playing your part as part of the body of Christ? Am I using my gifts to glorify God and to build the body and to extend His kingdom? Am I continuing the work of Jesus by loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, everything that is within me? Am I genuinely loving people with the compassion that Jesus has for them? Am I making disciples like Jesus instructed us to do? Am I living a Christ-like life, empowered and filled by the Spirit of God? If not, I'm going to call you to join those who are standing as I include you and myself in this closing prayer. If that's the desire of your heart. Jesus is alive. The fact that we are standing in response to your word which is alive and was shared and spoken to us today is testimony of the fact that Jesus is alive. He's moving and he's speaking through his Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we thank you for speaking to our hearts through your word today, Father God. Even as we've been declaring this word in the songs that we've been singing, we thank you that as your word was proclaimed and you've been true and faithful, that this word won't return to you empty, but will always accomplish its purpose. The fact that we are standing means that God has had a purpose for our gathering today. So I pray for each and every one of us that is standing. I thank you for those who have stood in response to the call of salvation. And I pray that even as they are guided in their next steps, Father God, that he who began a good work in you will complete that work to fulfillment, to completeness. We thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, for those of us that are standing because we realize that we haven't been faithful to the task, we ask that you will forgive us. Forgive us for not using our gifts. Forgive us for not playing our part in your kingdom, in your church, in your body. Forgive us for not serving others, glorifying you, extending your kingdom in the way that we should have. Forgive us for trying to do it in our own strength. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to work, to act with your power and not ours. Help us to be so dependent on you for everything that we do. Forgive us for times that our lives haven't reflected your glory because we haven't lived a Christ-like life. And we ask that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident because of the reality of your Spirit alive in our lives. And so we pray that you would show us those things that we need to remove, those things that need to be cut away, those things that need to be thrown off our lives so that you can have full reign in our lives, Father God. Lord, we are standing as a declaration that we can't do this on our own. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, we need you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.